When it comes to photography, I've found that there are three types, technical, artistic, and both. Our guest is both. When it comes to the art, Don learns the tech to create whatever vision he can imagine. Few people I know have dedicated as much time to being a full-time creative as our guest this week, Don Komarechka. Welcome, I guess, uh, to this podcast that I am now on and uh, happy to partake in. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Don. Thank you, man. We appreciate it. And you're from, you're living in Bulgaria, so we have to let people know. Uh, usually if they watch this YouTube video behind me, it's very dark. <laughs> it's not quite the case this week. Uh, so Bulgaria, how did that happen? I mean, we're going to get into that. We're going to talk more about Bulgaria. We're going to get into that. But before we do, I just want to say a quick hello to Mark and Aurora say hi to you guys it's been a while so uh this is season two episode two how are you guys doing doing great doing great just uh got the final paperwork i bought a car so uh all good all good i uh oh yeah my car i was uh they allowed me to buy the fleet vehicle from the company that i used to work for uh when i left so uh, i got a great deal on it paperwork arrived uh last uh last friday night and uh so just set up the insurance and everything on it today so Looking That's forward to driving fun. my car continued, I suppose, is the way to look at it. <laughs> yeah, but now it's officially yours, so. It is true, yeah. So it feels different. Yeah, I can put a bigger turbo on it or something, you know, whatever. You're not going to do that. I might. Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll <laughs> talk about that when that happens. Aurora, how about you? What are you how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, I had a little moment of panic there uh, when you said it's season two, episode two. Are you sure it's not episode three? Is it episode it is three? A- it oh, is episode, episode three. three. Yeah. Okay, cool. Because <laughs> I've got the number on the sign events. here, and I'm like, wait a minute. Do I have to get up and change? <laughs> yeah, you're always right. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I wasn't here last week, so I wasn't sure if like the the guest canceled or anything like that. But yeah. No, you're on the ball. You're on the okay. ball. Thank you for that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> no um, I'm I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm you know really busy with work right now, uh, leading into Christmas. Mm. It's been crazy. And I've had a lot of like really tough staffing situations. Uh, Need some help? Is maybe <laughs> I might reach out to you about oh, it. I've got time. It's been <laughs> a rough time. <laughs> Mark will be traveling um, backwards in time to make that work for his life. <laughs> to travel back and forth. Oh man, from uh, all the way from Thunder Bay, yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a rough one. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited to get on this one. Um, like I said earlier. Uh, Brian's told me about Don a couple of times about the type of photography he does. So I'm excited to get into it. Yeah, it's really interesting. Some of the things that Don does are unique to only Don. I've not seen anybody else do the same things, which is why hey, I I'm share so all my secrets. Anybody else can try well, it too. Well, you do. That's true. We're going to talk it's about It's true. That. But let's just say that Don is often imitated, but never precisely duplicated. I, I see a lot of work um, in in uh, photography circles that I'm in, uh, whether they be like, obviously, uh, Don. I think originally you're from Sudbury, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct? That's correct. That's, That's correct. So, so a, a lot of people from the Sudbury photography group know Don, and Don has taught seminars there. So, a lot of work that Don has influenced comes out of that group. And and uh, when it comes up, I know it's not Don's work because Don's work has a very specific look to it. But uh, I can tell it's Don influenced work. So that's awesome. That's actually a good point, too. Uh, That's actually, I I, want to take that as a bigger compliment than I think you intended, Mark, because oftentimes with photography, um, if you see a great landscape image, it's really hard to tell 
who the photographer was, right? I mean, that yeah. because your styling as a photographer is far less obvious most of the time than, say, if you're a painter or you're a musician. If you hear a guitar riff, you might immediately know who composed it or who is actually, you know, uh, holding that guitar, even if you haven't heard that song before because it's so reminiscent of a particular style. Um, photography is one of the realms uh, of artistic pursuit. That's a hard thing to accomplish. And if you're saying that I have, well, I'll just stick that feather in my hat. Thank you very much. You you should. You should, absolutely. There's just certain things, and Anna, we, we can get in a little bit more into it later. I've got your website up to screen share it. Um, but when you look at Dawn's images, and, and I encourage everyone to do so, um, you'll notice that there's a... Um, a look to them like a richness to the image and uh, like a depth of the image uh the colors are all or lack of color in, in snowflake images uh or or in some cases a lot of color in a snowflake which uh, most people won't believe but yeah there is a lot of color in snowflakes and maybe don will touch on the science briefly on that for us but um i noticed that when, when you see that you don't see that anywhere else unless i'm either looking through your book or at your uh, snowflake poster, which is probably hung in my living room, um, and uh, or on your website. So definitely, there is a a, a flavor to your work. Stop for sure. it! I'm blushing now. I know. I'm I'm blushing talking <laughs> about it. So, <laughs> <and I. laughs> well, the point of our show is to bring creatives onto our show who've managed to take their creative passions and turn it into their day-to-day -day lifestyle. Don, you've done that. How long have you been doing that? You literally eat, breathe, and sleep photography and videography these days. And how did you originate? How did that turn from you had a nine to five to I'm going to follow my heart and my dreams? Yeah. So if, if you dial it back, um, I, you know, uh, classically had absolutely no interest in photography. Um, my free time was spent with video games and computer projects and things like that. But, um, my dad was always very interested in, in photography, especially when he was younger, and he wanted to pursue it professionally. Um, my grandparents, his parents said no. And, and it was a smart no to say, um, because you know, even back then, a job as a photographer is a challenging one. Um, lots of ups and downs and uncertainties. And he ended up getting a stable job and uh, installed and designed mining communication equipment. He was very fulfilled with that. But he never became the photographer that he wanted to. And when he was uh, in his last years, um, he passed on very early in life uh, from long-term illness. And um, he, he gave me an envelope that had money in it, $1,000, I think. And he expected me to just go and spend it on something that I would enjoy, uh, video games or some such. And he'd be able to see me happy while he still could. And, and I remembered his love for photography. So I went out and I bought a camera. And uh, that really sparked something in me. You know, it was a great way to reconnect with my dad and, uh, and share some really good times before the end. But it also exposed me to an art form that I otherwise didn't know I was passionate about. Um, I, I'd really say that, that that was in 2007, 2006, 2007, uh, that sort of a time frame. Uh, but it wasn't until about two or three years later before it really uh, took hold and became fascinating for me. And I still remember the very first photographic idea that I had. And, and this spark was really when it started, Brian, um, was in the fall of 2008. I had um, the idea to uh, put maple leaves red maple leaves from the fall on a bed of fresh snow in the shape of the uh, national flag of canada 
And of course, those two seasons don't always uh, intersect. So I had to, uh, you know, use all of my my photographic knowledge here, um, which basically means all my knowledge in life going back to kindergarten. You know, remember when you would iron leaves between wax paper and you'd preserve them? Um, that became photographic knowledge for me. And uh, and so uh, I was in my early 20s and I was still living with my mom. And here I am as a grown adult, uh, post-college, uh, ironing leaves between wax paper for a project. She was concerned. Uh, and there, Brian is holding up a leaf. So yes. there you go. I, I put uh, them in my, my bird's book. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Thank you. Uh, but it, Inspired it by January you. January 11th of 2009. Thank you. Uh, January 11th, 2009, when I uh, found that perfect, you know, fresh snowfall, sunny day, no wind, laid out the leaves uh, and snapped that photograph. And that's the day that uh, I like to say that photography um, struck the right chord in me. And that's the day that I could say I kind of uh, became professional uh, with the execution of an idea over the long term. So here's and the, that's the image right there the viewers that uh, that are watching, not just listening. Uh, awesome shot. And now there's a lot that went on with this photo since this photo was made. Yeah. So while this is my most successful photograph, this is also my most stolen photograph. And, you know, you, with photography and copyright, you can't copyright an idea. Anybody can go out and make their own of this. And maybe the background is birch bark or anything else. Uh, that's you can't copyright an idea. Have it. Just run with it. Do whatever you want with that concept. I might not have been the first, but uh, arguably mine really stood out at the time that I made it, and it was stolen and continues to be stolen all the time. And, and the sad truth of that is, I mean, it's sad for some people, it's a, it's a good thing for me, is I've made more money on this image through copyright infringement settlements than I have actually like selling prints of it and licensing it. <laughs> uh, the internet is a weird place for photographers today, uh, and revenue streams come in unusual sources sometimes. But that's an important yeah. thing to talk about because revenue streams are essential for a professional photographer when that's your only job. Yeah. So I mean, like I, I, I get work all the time uh, from you know people commissioning me to shoot documentary film work. Um, I've got a shoot where I have to go and photograph the man-made snow from ski resorts, from the snowmaking machines, uh, and they've got a lot of those here in Bulgaria. That snow is ugly, but somebody wants to pay me to go to a ski resort. Okay, uh, I'll do it. You know, you, you never know where these little jobs are going to come from, but copyright infringement settlements has actually been a sizable portion and a growing portion of my income. Hmm. Wow. So I just want to back up to the snow from the snow machines. Do they want you to do macro images like your sky crystals images or? Yep. Really? Eh? And, 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 and they'll, they're, they'll compare it to natural snow. Uh, now the stuff from those man-made, uh, snow machines uh is just like little crumbly balls of ice it's just it's so ugly and nondescript i never thought to ever photograph it even just as a stock item to have uh now somebody wants it and uh it doesn't matter where on the planet i am so long as there's snow then and there you can make it happen perfect that's interesting. I, I'm actually interested to see uh, whenever the, that is released, the images behind that, to see the difference between man-made and, and natural formed uh, snowflakes. That's going to be kind of cool. 
Uh, well, I think so. I hope so. Uh, we'll see how that goes. This next week, I got to hit the slopes. <laughs> Perfect. Did you think that you would be saying that when you moved to Bulgaria? <laughs> nope. Nope. No. Uh, I mean, we're, we're here next to the Black Sea, right? And and so uh, in in that regards, it's like I don't even know if it's going to drop below freezing before Christmas time here. Uh, hmm. And I'm I'm okay with that. You know, I'm known for my work with snowflakes, but I've got over fourteen hundred unedited snowflakes from Canada. I'm good for a while. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's talk about that for a quick second. Um, I know you as a photographer who has a higher understanding of the technical side of photography. Um, and when I say a higher understanding, I mean like there's people I know who know a lot. I know a lot. Mark knows a lot. Aurora knows a lot. There's people there's I know. People who know. he means. I don't know much. I know a lot of people. Yeah, <laughs> there's people I know who know even yeah. more than that, like yeah. our good friend Ross Chevalier and some other people. And then there's a Don Kamarechka who digs in so deep that it's not just photography, it's light, it's light path, it's light, how it bounces off things, it's the everything about it. Um, when we start talking about snowflake photography, everybody might be thinking, oh, snowflake photography. Your work is completely unlike any, like, okay, there were some people who did it before you, but you've taken it to a different level. You've been able to measure through the EXIF information, the metadata of a photo, the actual size in relation to all the snowflakes that you shot to make this poster that Mark has shared here. So first off, how did you get involved in snowflake photography? And secondly, where did this deep dig come from that you've been able to master this really interesting technique? And maybe you can go over that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, and, and Mark just pulled up my sky crystals website, which has, a, it's supposed to have a snowflake gallery, but it's broken right now. And ah. I haven't had the time in the move to fix it. But, um, but if you, uh, you can actually check out my Flickr page and on my Flickr account, there is an album of just all snowflakes, but uh, to, to, to answer the question, um, so, uh, Mark, you see the sidebar, uh, uh, sorry, on the page that you were just on, there was a sidebar that had some snowflake photographs on them. Um, so, and if you just click on any of those, you'll, you'll find uh, some of the more recent stuff. But the, the, the idea um, kind of came to me when I was um, exploring uh, a boring day at the office. You know, I bought a macro lens, uh, the Canon MPE 65 millimeter macro lens, which I think is still active in their lineup, even though mm -hmm. it was created in, or released in 1999. Um, um, but the, uh, the, the office day was going to be boring. And so I brought the camera to work and I was just photographing tips of ballpoint pens and cork board, which is organic and just boring office stuff, trying to make it fascinating. And, and I thought to myself, you know, it's snowing outside. What, what does a snowflake look like uh, under, you know, high magnification? And I was immediately brought back to my childhood um, curiosity of, of just everything in the world when you see it for the first time. I, I felt that again. And that uh, photography oh. allowed me to feel. And I, if I had not taken that what if moment right there and started to explore it, I probably wouldn't have been as passionate about photography today. Everything was just kind of building on top of um, itself, but there was a couple of very specific moments in that boring day at the office when I was designing organizational charts for various intertwining corporations. Um, I, I went home that day and I just didn't stop photographing the snowflakes and that started it. That was back in 2010, I think. 
So, uh, and then there was a time when I was publishing one a day for a hundred days straight, uh, in the winter time. And, uh, yeah, it's not just a single photograph. Every one of these is a combination of on an average of 40 separate frames of two to 300 images taken of the same snowflake with focus stacking and about four hours of post-processing. So that became full-time work. Um, and I gained global notoriety because I put in the time and I did it in a way that nobody had done it before because in the past, Brian, you mentioned that people have photographed snowflakes. I have, I'm not the first, um, but everybody in the past had photographed them using transmitted light, which means light that's coming from behind the snowflake, hits the crystal and then comes to the camera. Uh, and so that would give a white on white type of design, uh, which isn't that favorable. And it's more then, like an you know, outline uh, that you see, you don't see the kind of, the but, depth that you uh, you know, one of the most famous snowflake photographers, uh, Wilson Bentley from Vermont, uh, a place that you're familiar with. Um, I love but, uh, but in, in, in that scenario, what Bentley did was in order to remove the white around the white snowflake is he would make a duplicate of his negative and take a razor blade and cut it out by hand. And so if you've ever seen classic uh, black background snowflakes from Wilson Bentley of over a hundred years ago, uh, he painstakingly edited those as well. Uh, for me, uh, the black background is just a homemade black mitten. It functions as an insulator, uh, contrast adder, and uh, it's pretty easy to make it completely out of focus uh, when the snowflake is on an angle. But in order to get reflected light off the surface of the crystal, to really make it shine, and in the image that you're seeing right now, to reveal colors caused by thin film interference and tiny bubbles trapped inside the ice, um, you can only get that with light reflecting off the surface. But the angle of incident equals the angle of reflection. So if I have a ring flash, uh, the, uh, the light angle is off on a side. And if the snowflake is on an angle to the camera, it'll go up and come through the lens properly. There's no way, unless you're using some complex uh, mirror setups, or you can somehow get the light to come from inside the lens itself and then bounce back out, which is not easy, uh, if possible at all, you can't get the snowflake flat to the focal plane which is where all the focus stacking and all the technical uh, jargon and mumbo jumbo and headaches and crying in the field of falling snow because your hands have gone numb and you go inside and you put them under warm water until they're thawed. And then you go back and you do it again, because that is the life of a snowflake photographer. Well, you did put in the time, that's for sure. And one thing you I asked know me a question and I don't even know if I answered it. I just kept rambling. You, I'm sorry. You did. I, yeah, I just want to, I want to point out on the, on this image, all the, all the snowflake images that I've shared on the screen here. Um, this is where I'm talking about the richness of the, the photograph that you'll see in Don's work that uh, is often tried to be uh, duplicated, but uh, not always, not, never been successful that I've seen, um, where you see how rich the, the background that he's, he's got the color, how sharp the snowflake is. And again, that's what you were saying, upwards of 40 or, or more uh, frames used for a single image. So that, that's it, where... Lucky, 25, but yeah. it's been as many as 87, I think, is the record. Yeah. Yeah. And, wow. and, and that's this is what we're seeing here. Like, I, I know uh, using what I learned from you and, and from your your book, um, Sky Crystals, where you give away uh, your secrets, you give all the secrets away in that book, um, you 
I was able to um, do something similar of a rose uh, where I did the focus stack and um, stacked it in software and was able to do that. And I, I think I actually did that when I was learning from you, when I was in the Arcanum under, in your um, um, in your cohort. So um, definitely Those something that days. is, I miss you know, that. they were fun days, but it's, it is a lot of work and, and you have to put in the work and the time, otherwise your results don't uh, become like this. And, and most, most photographers will not spend four or more hours on a single image they they're most photographers you know uh they want it done they want it quick and and they'll move on but for your the way your passion runs deep uh is the the time that you take it shows here for sure well and, and i think too uh, a good part of that is a meshing of art and science you know we've talked about the technical stuff and i guess i'm adept uh at that but on the other side of things it's understanding how we visually see things, like how we read an image, um, how we connect colors together. You know, in the image that's up right now, how curves and things connecting to corners of frames and, uh, you know, color science and the, sort of the, the human definition of what we consider to be beautiful and all of these different uh, ethereal artistic things that are the same tool set that a painter or any other visual artist would need if you don't have those as a photographer, you're a camera technician. And you can be a very good camera technician. In fact, a lot of times with my snowflake work, it's so technical that I could call myself a snowflake technician. If that's ever a job title, I'd probably be locked away if I told <laughs> that to anybody that didn't know who I was. But um, <laughs> it, in an image like, like what we have up here with the uh, water droplet refraction, it really weaves those two things together quite strongly because you have to understand how light's going to bend in different ways. You also have to understand how we're going to perceive it on a human level when you create a, a, a finished piece, uh, something like that. Awesome stuff. And oh, yes. uh, the, the way that you're able to go into such detail is just impressive. And that's all through the stacking and that's all through the technique and the artistic, as you're saying, like the color theory, it does get, it, I always say the extra 10% makes a hundred percent of the difference. And you're putting in that extra 10% all the time. So it's great to see. Um, let's talk about the work you put into your books because I mean, that, that in itself had to be a challenge and a whole learning thing. I mean, you never, you never stop learning, do you? You're always, trying to find new things and making your own book that had to be a completely different experience for you. I remember the first book you had the first run that didn't quite work out as you expected. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, well, the whole first print run of sky crystals had to be scrapped. Um, but I, I mean, to that end, you know, when you say I never stop learning with learning inherently comes making mistakes. Uh, and, and so you have to revel in that. And, and you have to understand that that's just a part of the learning process. If you get lucky and it works perfectly the first time, you probably didn't learn much through that experience. Um, and so the, the idea that I'll kind of, you know, when I pick up a new project, it's like, okay, I expect failure upon failure upon failure. And you just ride that wave until it starts to connect together and you can sort of afford it. Um, so yeah, my, my first book, Sky Crystals, which is out of print now, uh, was crowdfunded successfully back in uh, 2012 and it came out in 2013. Mark has a copy of it right there. Signed uh, copy, I have to say, I signed. Yes, and uh, of course- <laughs> Not for the, sure. 
Uh, hey, you know what though? If you if you were on on hard times for any reason, the secondhand market for that book, you could get like at least a couple of hundred bucks for it. Uh, they are in high demand. I should. It's worth well more that. than that to me. I think I'll hang on to it. Okay. Okay. I I don't know where I put a copy of my my new book. I know Brian's got one behind him, but um, the, uh, the the new book is uh, Macro Photography: The Universe at Our Feet. And uh, there are a couple of stores that, uh, that still have it. I, I don't think Henry's stocks books, but if anybody at no. Henry's wants to buy some, let me know. Um, the camera <laughs> store out of Calgary, uh, they've got some copies. B&H and Adorama in the U.S., they've got copies of it as well. Um, and yes, it's a signed copy. Oh. I signed that one for you. There you Thanks, go. Thanks, man. I got it in the mail, so I wasn't quite sure if maybe you had one of your assistants sign it for me or something. No, every book. <laughs> I, I don't have assistants, especially not during the pandemic times. No, every, every copy of those uh, was packaged by me or my wife, uh, who, if, if there's an assistant, she is a very capable one. Um, but uh, yeah, that one, that, that one took a lot longer to produce than expected because I was uh, delaying its finalization to really put some final touches and polishing on it. Uh, and then the pandemic hit and I became a stay at home dad and, uh, you know, just life priorities vastly changed. And it, uh, it, it came to the point where I, I needed to just no, not stop doing my professional work, but only do the stuff that was going to be needed to pay the bills immediately, uh, and put other projects in the back burner because there just wasn't enough time and definitely not enough sanity. Um, but it did eventually get finished and, uh, and I've, uh, I've shipped around 5,500 copies of that. Nice. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty, pretty darn thrilled about it and, uh, it'll soon be sold out too. Uh, I don't have that many left. It was, I think a, a 6,000 production run, and, but it's 384 pages, about 90,000 words. And, uh, and it's, it makes a great coffee table book, even if you, you know, don't do macro photography, but it gives away every single technique and process from the equipment to the shooting techniques, the post-processing and the editing workflows and everything else. It's all in there. And I, I think part of the joy of producing the book was to give it all away. Like, to, I mean, obviously you've got to pay for the book, but to, to give away all the secrets um, and to, to hold absolutely nothing back and to, especially when you're self-publishing, you get to make it the way that you want. Uh, Brian's holding up a pair of uh, red, blue anaglyph glasses because there's a chapter in the back of the book on stereoscopic 3D macro. And it is just so much fun and so easy to do that nobody's ever really done before um, that I, I just love it. I, I'm a huge fan of, of 3D imagery, uh, as, as you can see with the only film camera that I brought with me on my travels uh, to Bulgaria that I wanted to make sure I had in my luggage was a 1926 uh, uh, yeah. Um, the, the very first uh, camera made by Frankie and Heideke was the Heidescope, which had film sheets on the back. And it was so popular and medium format roll film was coming out at the time. The Heidescope became the Rolidoscope. And that is where the name Roli came from, was this camera right here. Oh. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, um, I like 3d, I like weird stuff in photography, especially if nobody's walking down that path, that's a path I'm likely to explore because I'm going to find stuff that's been missed, um, much more readily and have a, a bunch more aha moments along the way. Yeah. And plus you're doing something that not many people do. So of course it carves your own path and it makes everything you do a little more unique. I just wanted to thank you though, because this brought back the old Vincent Price movies. 
Uh, I had to go to Max Milk to buy one of these things back in the day. So no more Max Milk. I'm actually thinking, because I've had such a positive response from that, uh, from people, they write to me and say, my, my kids stole the glasses right away. I didn't see the book for a week. Um, and I think I, I might actually do a 3D children's book as one that of my next awesome. projects. Because that I think be that awesome. there'd be a, a fun audience cool. for it. And, uh, you know, it, it wouldn't be my classic audience, I can tell you that much. And, you know, it wouldn't be as big and bulky. Um, but I, I, I'd be passionate about it. And, and I love taking on those passion projects. That would be very cool. I think you'd that do really cool. well with that. That would be cool. And, and as you said, you, you go down the roads that other photographers don't. And I, and I know uh, a lot of people have gotten into it now. Uh, you got Brian and I into it for sure, but infrared photography. Um, oh, I love has, that. I got to uh, do a book on just, that too. I mean, it's yeah, it's so otherworldly. Uh, even like the, it's, it's the stuff midday that's just boring. Uh, that you otherwise would just walk past, maybe take a snap of, but yeah. um, you know that's the famous windswept pine from Kilbert Provincial Park, um, and uh, you know it, just imagery like that. I, I I've got a, a full spectrum modified camera that I've got a whole bunch of filters for uh, infrared, ultraviolet, different notch filters and things that um, you know it, that that photo that you've got up there right now mark i think you were uh, you were nearby that was on one of the uh early google plus photo walks uh, yeah it might, to, might that's island. on the island yeah Brian, you I too was, yeah huh yeah for sure yeah. and then uh, also um also don you've got an uh, ultraviolet uh, photography ultraviolet light as well so really well, really ultraviolet is such a cool thing because yeah. uh okay so there's two ways to do ultraviolet photography um the the hard expensive technical and non-rewarding way or the way that just requires uh one of these guys an ultraviolet flashlight simply put this little ultraviolet flashlight will cause things to fluoresce and this is a, a Convoy uh, S2, I think. There's also a C8, but th this works just fine. Um, well, uh, even, uh, Mark, if you still have my, my Flickr page up, go to the most recent oh, that image that I posted on Flickr. Yeah, I've got it. Uh, yeah, you, you showed it recently. Um, and with that image, I actually took that photograph. It's of, a, of an Estrantia flower that I found at a, at a flower shop. And um, yeah, that one right there. I shot that with my iPhone. I shot that with my iPhone 13 Pro without any modifiers or lenses uh, sort of uh, on top of it. Yeah, I cropped it and I edited it a little bit. Um, but all I literally needed was this ultraviolet flashlight and my phone. Uh, it's so approachable to explore these things. And, and yeah, if you get a cheap ultraviolet flashlight, it's not going to work out well for you. Yeah. Uh, they might be good for finding a scorpion in your garage or dog pee on your carpet. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, they'll bleed a lot of visible light into the ultraviolet spectrum. The key thing about these these convoy lights is they don't emit any visible light. So when the ultraviolet light hits the subject, like this flower, um, the atoms uh, get excited, or rather the electrons in, in, in those atoms get excited, and they go to a slightly higher orbit. But for a very brief period of time, it's pretty much instantaneously, they decay back down to their original orbit, and they emit light. But something is lost in that, right? You can't move without using energy. And so um, the light that is emitted off of, like really from the subject itself, is at a lower uh, energy, a longer wavelength. And so the ultraviolet light becomes visible light 
as if the subject itself is emitting it because it literally is. And so you don't need any special modifications to your camera, no special filters, nothing. You're capturing visible light. Your subject is emitting it because the ultraviolet light is exciting the subject to emit it. And that's devilishly simple because- But you're uh, doing this in the dark though, right? Like this is a dark oh, yeah, environment. Oh yeah, yeah. So like, uh, you know, uh, cl close the curtains, you know, work it in your dark room if you still have one that functions, et cetera. Uh, but I've even bought like from just a textile store, this big sheet of black felt and uh, a couple of folding chairs on a table and drape the felt over top of that. You get yourself a little dark chamber there and that works nicely as well. Very cool. Wow. I am going to have to try that. I happen to have one of those ultraviolet flashlights that my father gifted me um, to look for uh, fluorescing rocks up here on the shores of Lake Superior. They're called Uper light rocks. And uh, yeah, well, they, they'll fluoresce beautifully uh, yeah. orange and, and sometimes green on shorter wavelengths yeah. as well. Yeah, um, so uh, I have that. And I, of course, I've used it to find the aforementioned uh, animal pee in the house as well. It works quite well. Well, I, I have one. Uh, I, I didn't bring much, but I, I brought one rock from my, my rock collection. The rest of it is in storage. But this rock, when I hit it with ultraviolet light, fluoresces red oh very cool um, and but it actually doesn't just fluoresce red this is a special type of ruby that fluoresces in the deep visible red but more prominently in infrared so it's okay. ultraviolet induced infrared fluorescence and that's just putting that nerd hat on to the extreme <laughs> uh, so that's yeah it's the paths I walk down. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, you put your put the geek hat on and, and away you go. I love it. Um, At one point, Brian actually gave me a propeller hat. I packed it in the luggage somewhere. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was not going to bring it yet, up. But... <laughs> nice. Well, we did the photo expo, and and you're such you you, you delve in so deep. It was just perfect. And I did and appreciate like it, half my keynote wearing it until people just couldn't <laughs> stop laughing, and I. It was awesome. Um, do you think the iPhone's ever going to replace the cameras that you use, or the cameras we no. use day to day? No, but but Not the thing is, iPhone, the, mobile handheld device like that. Uh, with macro work, which is where I you know predominantly find a lot of my my work. Everything is under the the umbrella of the unseen world, but macro is where I get a lot of thrills. Um, diffraction is a problem. So um, when you have an aperture that's very very small, uh, light will bend off course. And the further off course it bends, then it's not going to hit the pixel that it should be hitting. And if your pixels are thereby also very, very, very small, if your sensor is super tiny, um, then it's going to be coloring outside the lines and you have a, a loss of resolution. And uh, after a certain point, that loss can no longer be recovered no matter what AI secret sauce you throw at it. So there's a limit to how much you can do. Will the dynamic range increase? Yeah, sure, uh, absolutely. The resolution probably won't, and I'm getting spoiled with uh, my 47 megapixel uh, full-frame cameras these days um, that have their high-resolution modes that shoot nearly 200 megapixel images. And, um, and so uh, it's never going to replace that. But uh, I, I do, I do want to make a note that it's not the gear that makes the image. Right. Yeah. Sure. Certain gear will make it better. You know, if you have a grand 
you know, a, like a Steinway grand piano and you got a concert pianist uh, playing on that thing, jamming away, it's going to sound awesome. But that same pianist on a uh, little play broken, play so long as it's tuned, little toy piano will still sound pretty darn good. And if I sat down at that Steinway, it would, I could play Mary Had a Little Lamb. That's about as good as I could do. But I shot for a number of years using Canon, like the 1DX and the 1DX Mark II and, and the big guns, right? Um, partly because of the image quality and dynamic range. I didn't really use the autofocus that much. But when I was asked, you know, what camera I use, people would be like, oh, well, I can't, I can't afford that six, $7,000 camera body. So I can't do what Don does. And then I switched gears and I shot for a year with the Micro Four Thirds camera, the, uh, the Lumix GX9. And, uh, and I was doing remarkably similar work. You know, would it have been slightly better using my previous gear? Maybe it would also have been less convenient in some ways as well. There's always trade-offs. But when I was holding up this tiny little palm-sized camera saying, yes, this is the, the device that made it, people stopped caring about the device as much anymore. People started caring more about, okay, it's a camera. I got a camera. I got a camera better than yours. What are you doing with that camera uh, that makes it work? And furthermore, I am going to continue on doing a series of work with my iPhone, not because it's my favorite tool, but to say that it can be done and that obfuscates the gear itself, right? The gear is no longer important at that point because everybody has the ability to do it. So let's talk about the ability rather than the equipment. I uh, love it. And yeah. that's something that, you know, Aurora and I for sure talk about regularly. I mean, we see customers coming in all the time just wanting to make better photos. So they want to buy more expensive gear. We're like, well, you realize that that's not how it works. You know, it can work that way. Like you're saying, I mean, if you know how to use it, if you've taken the training and you, you understand what this camera does differently than this camera, then that makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, yeah, it's our stick job me to... in a Formula One race car. I will kill myself, right? I mean, <laughs> or someone else. Uh, the, the right equipment for the right people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. For sure. Aurora, you do a lot of um, interesting types of things. Like we did that transfers with the, the Fuji film and all that kind of stuff. What do you think about the stuff that Don does? I, I think it's really interesting. Like I, macro photography is a avenue of photography I haven't really done much with um, personally like I'm more like into like portrait and like product photography and stuff like that so it's a very interesting side of photography uh, that I haven't really explored um, I like when I was seeing the snowflake photography earlier and like the close-up pictures of, uh, you know, the water droplets and the bugs and stuff like that I thought it was so cool and I was trying to figure out like trying to really dissect how how he was doing it type of thing um how about so that one aurora how about making a freezing soap bubble uh turning <laughs> solid into crystal on a flower that's cool that's very cool <laughs> literally yeah. cool literally so uh, <laughs> so funny um but but there, there's a lot of simple behind the scenes steps involved in doing this that you know if, if i could explain how it was lit well there's one flashlight lighting the underside of it uh to fill in some of the shadows there's one that's mm -hmm. predominantly aimed at the at the crystal freezing orb in behind the juxtaposition of the two elements is a really easy thing to do you just buy that gerbera daisy and stick it outside for an hour uh, and then it's going to be, you know, a flower shaped piece of ice, uh, for the most part, uh, cause it's all frozen. 
and uh, get a bubble mixture, blow a bubble, put it in place, and try that about 400 times before you get it to work. Yeah, easy. <laughs> yeah, just, just that simple. <laughs> that's so but, cool. So but, that's like a, an actual bubble that you froze. That, that, like that a is a, a soap bubble uh, with a mixture Whoa. of six parts water, two parts dish soap, and one part white corn syrup mixed together and blown through a drinking straw. Um, in oh, okay. temperatures below minus eight Celsius, uh, until about minus 18 Celsius within that window, uh, those bubbles will freeze solid in about 10 seconds or so. Um, wow. And so you have a narrow window of opportunity before they're completely frozen solid and they're less pretty. I like the puzzle piece approach when you still have all the crystals still growing and almost connecting together, but not quite touching. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, so that's why there's a lot of trial and error because the bubble might pop or it might be the wrong size or it might freeze the wrong way. And um, and yeah. so I've uh, it's funny because I was commissioned this past summer to shoot freezing uh, soap bubbles and soap film um, in June or July. Uh, I had to buy a chest freezer, a very big chest freezer. And I can attest you can do this indoors. You can do this in a chest freezer. Uh, if you get a big enough one. And uh, so uh, if somebody was willing to pay the bill for that project, I was willing to make it happen. And I'm not Do even sure if that's a chest freezer. Uh, it's it's in, in my house in Canada, which we're oh, okay. uh, renting out to uh, to tenants at the moment. So yeah, technically it's still in my possession, but I don't think I'll ship it here. I think I'll buy another one over here. <laughs> good, good plan. <laughs> Awesome. I think I think it's so awesome. Like I, I can definitely understand like how you lit the things because I have like the technical background of like learning lighting for product photography and portrait photography and that kind of thing, and like things that are clear, like backlighting it um, or lighting it from like the edges, uh, flagging off light and stuff like that. So I can definitely see that technique added to it, but. Uh, to me, the stuff that's the most interesting that I haven't really delved into is like the use of like, I'm sure maybe you've worked with like things like obviously like um, you have that macro lens, which you spoke about earlier, but do you use other kind of like stacked lenses um, or? Oh, I have more macro lenses than anybody would consider healthy. Um, <laughs> so uh, I've got a a lot of obscure things uh, like the uh, was it the Minolta 3x to 1x macro lens that takes um, uh, an old film camera battery like a like a 2CR1 type battery uh, uh, to control its focus and magnification mechanisms. And it's this weird beast that I haven't really used much yet. But I've got the Lyoa 24 millimeter probe lens, um, which is a cool one. <laughs> uh, which is a really cool one. I've had some fun uh, adventures with that. But I've used microscope objectives as well, all the way up to 50 times microscope objectives to image things like grains of sand or micrometeorites. Um, yeah, like imagine a meteorite uh, the size of a grain of sand. Um, and, uh, and trying to shape light on something that small, that that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, yeah. so yeah, you know, and yeah, regular macro lenses, you know, the Tamron 90, the Sigma 105, those are great go-to lenses. Even my, uh, Lumix 24 to 105 kit lens on their full frame cameras. Um, it, it's not a true macro lens, but I use it as a macro lens all the time, even if it doesn't get all the way to one-to-one -one life size. Um, God, I'm even testing right now the um, the Lyoa uh, 85 millimeter 
um, f5.6 full frame mirrorless macro lens. I have one of their pre-production samples. <clears throat> it's a lovely lens and I've been doing some fun work with it. Um, and the, the joy of that is it's not expensive. You know, macro photography is one genre that doesn't benefit from the latest and greatest in autofocus and image stabilization mm -hmm. and, and all that stuff. Um, and I almost never shoot those lenses wide open at f2.8. So why not get one with the widest aperture at f5.6 for a smaller, more compact and less expensive lens? And I love recommending things that are cheap to people. Um, not, uh, I should say inexpensive, uh, you know, th that does exactly what they need and probably more, but doesn't have a price point that breaks the bank. If you want me to spend your money, I can tell you how to spend it. Uh, you, you want a $10,000 camera, macro camera setup? Oh, I, I can price that out for you. Um, but you want to shave a zero off of that or, or even less cut that in half. Sure. Yeah. You don't need, uh, to, to, to lust over the latest and greatest super expensive thing that everybody is promoting that you have to own. Um, oftentimes, uh, yeah, you look at the most impactful images uh, in, in the past, right? Um, I, re I remember attending a presentation. Uh, you mentioned uh, Ross uh, Chevalier. Um, he showed a, uh, an image of um, the vulture and the little girl. Very, very powerful image in the story, but the photographer uh, that had taken it that unfortunately uh, took their life uh, as a result of the feedback from that uh, award-winning image. Uh, you know, uh, Tank Man, you know, I can, everybody hearing me say Tank Man could imagine the man standing mm -hmm. in front of the row of tanks heading towards Tiananmen Square. Um, and, and, and those images were taken on equipment that we would all consider antiques today that you could find for, you know, $5 at a thrift store. Uh, the, the, the kind of uh, mentality that I am trying to um, echo here is that you need just enough gear to match your skill. Yeah. And if you outgrow that, your, your skill can continue growing with that same amount of gear. It's not going to, there's not going to be a barrier for you. You'll, in fact, if there is any technical barrier, you'll find creative ways around it. And that'll be a different way to inject creativity into your work. And that's, that's actually a good thing. I've been looking for the segue to this next part that I want to ask you. And that was perfect. Um, I remember you telling me a story about you taking a trip with your Canon 5D, maybe. I don't know what camera it was, but you had a 24 to 105 lens that just didn't work when you got there. Yeah. And then you were uh, able to, we understanding your gear and understanding how it works, you're able to, you know, half remove it or press the aperture button and do funky that things. That was a trip to Istanbul. Uh, it was a side trip from a previous uh, a vacation trip here to Bulgaria because uh, we uh, Bulgaria borders Turkey. And so it was just a, you know, a, a bus ride over there. And I'm in the Blue Mosque, a very beautiful architecture uh, in some of those buildings. And, and I take the 24 to 105 lens and it's just giving me lens communication error. It's not working, not doing anything. And so, okay, I don't have a lot of time to troubleshoot. And I brought that as my one good walk around lens. My other two lenses were trick lenses. It was my 15 millimeter fisheye and my MPE 65 super ultra macro, uh, which can't do anything beyond one-to-one -one magnification. So I'm screwed if this lens doesn't work. Um, it worked at 24 millimeters. Okay. And so at 24 millimeters, what I would do is uh, I would... Uh, set my aperture on the camera to say like, I wanted to shoot a, an image at f8. I'd set the, uh, the aperture to f8, press the depth of field preview button around the base of the lens, but on the camera body, uh, press that button while dismounting the lens halfway. 
doing that would remove communication between the lens and the camera body such that the aperture blades would stay locked in that setting. At that point, while the lens is precariously half mounted, adjust my zoom to the level that I wanted it to be, set my focus manually, take the picture, then reattach the lens. I was angry that I had, <laughs> but I figured it out. Uh, you know, maybe my anger is reflective in those images. I'll have to go back and check. Them. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, it, yeah, the more you figure things out, mm -hmm. the, um, the, the more you'll find a creative way around it. It's just, you sit there and ponder a problem. There is a way. Uh, and I loved in Canada, I can't wait for all of my stuff to arrive. I had a table in, in, my, in my studio just covered in random stuff, just like or, organized sort of, but organized in a way that I could just see everything all at once and, and no tidier than that. And then I would just uh, think of my problem and stare at the table. And eventually I'd get an idea. No, nah, that didn't work. Okay, go back and stare at the table some more. And eventually another idea would come up and, uh, and I'd find a solution, so. Well, you know, it's funny, you said earlier enough gear to match your skill, but it's also raising your skill to understand your gear to get the most out of it before you just replace it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, there's you know, so many... uh, th there are some moments where, um, like, I, I, I got buyer's remorse a couple of times. Like, I, I bought the Meyer Optic Trio Plan 100, um, a modern version of it from uh, whatever company owns it now. Uh, I think OPC Precision Optics uh, owns them out of Germany, and they're expensive. They're like $1,000 or so. Um, and I bought it because it had this beautiful soap bubble bokeh effect in the background where the outer edges of autofocus specular highlights were brighter than the inner area when shooting wide open. And they were all circular and it was a really beautiful kind of thing. Um, and I, everybody was saying, that's the lens. That's the best lens to get to do that. And so I just said, okay, well, I want the best. I could afford it. So I bought it and it worked. But I thought, you know, this optical formula this is like really popular in the 1950s through the 70s. It was, it's over a hundred years old. You know, it goes way back. Why is this lens so damn expensive? And, and I looked it up, it's just a simple triplet. So I went on eBay and I bought a projector lens, uh, a triplet projector lens from, uh, from this part of the world, from uh, Eastern Europe. I think it came from the Ukraine. And uh, you can't easily mount those on a camera, so maybe they were an unpopular choice. But all I did was I stuck it in an old set of Canon Auto Bellows um, uh, from the FD mount era uh, that I picked up for under 100 bucks. another eBay purchase. Uh, browsing eBay is dangerous for me. But anyhow, I got these different <laughs> ingredients, and, and I put them together. I just stuck it in the front and used gaffer's tape to hold it on the front. And I get better results with that configuration than anything else far better than the Trio Plan 100 that I paid $1,000 for. And it was like a light bulb going off in my head. It's like, don't buy what you're told is going to work for you. Understand why it's going to work and focus your energies on that. Because as soon as you do, you'll find other ways to get there. Uh, and it'll often be at a cheaper price point too. Yeah. This actually reminds me of Joseph. Um, because Joseph, uh, he works at the New Market Store. He's uh, he does video and stuff like that. I know Joseph Leduc. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, not Leduc. No. Uh, oh no, 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 it's a different Joseph. Okay. Yeah, uh, sales guy at our store. Uh, yeah. So he has an A7S three, and he's 
doing like video documentaries and stuff like that. And he was looking for a particular lens that had a very uh, interesting look to uh, the bokeh on it. And he was looking online and there were lenses, like you said, like over the thousand dollars, but then he was looking at ones that were $25 who could do the same, if not better. And then he started asking around to see if any of us had screw mount Pentax lenses of a particular model. And I actually, had that particular model screw mount lens That's and I just awesome. gifted it to him because I wasn't using it very often. Um, and uh, yeah, he like, he said, this is exactly perfect of what I wanted. And it was a, it, to me, it was a lens that was gifted to me by somebody else. So I'm like, you know, why pass not it on. Yeah. pass it on. If he's going to use it, he's yeah. going to be happy with it. Like, well, there's, like you so, say. there's so much film gear out there that, yeah you can do so much cool things with like try different techniques and, and things like that. And Brian alluded to this earlier with like uh, film emulsion transfers and stuff like that. I've, I've done quite a bit of experimentation. And, and I've adapted a lot of those old film lenses to digital cameras too, because they have a different yeah. look, look and feel. Well, that's actually not what like Joseph I'm going to seek one out specifically. Um, but I, I did, there, there was a company, I don't know if they've rebranded themselves, but they were, I'll, I'll spell it. It's dog. But the second word is spelled S C H I D T. Uh, try to pronounce that in English, and you'll figure out. Oh shit! Um, we'll just call them, <laughs> yeah. call them dog poop optics, and uh, and, and they would custom uh, take apart an old uh, Soviet lens, and you could choose from a list of options how you want it to be grimed up. Do you want the optics to be scratched? Do you want some? rust oh, particles to be thrown inside like uh, what wh what do you want this grunged up look to look like for you specifically for video because if you want to get a grungy weird type of flare effect on video uh it's far easier to do that in camera than to get that to work effectively in post-processing uh it can be done and the tools and software are getting better and better but man it feels just so much more artistic to to like do it in camera and, and let the light play its proper role. So why is film so popular? Speaking of which, I mean, I know we weren't just talking about film, but I hear this and I think, all right, well, everybody wants to go back to shooting in camera or I shouldn't say everybody. I hate film, by the way, I'm not a fan. Um, I get <laughs> it. And I, and there's no wrong way to make art and please everybody, if that's what you want to do, dig in and do it. There's so many cool avenues now more than ever. But we are we're processing close to 300 rolls of film a week in our store and i don't understand why film has become so popular there's a lot of reasons i've heard the best explanation so far is why disposable cameras are popular it was a girl who said every time she pulls out her cell phone there's a notification there's a distraction she ends up you know squirreling into all these different things and all she wanted to do was take a picture hanging out with her friends so some people are using film to get away from the distractions you the tangibility film. for me, like Go ahead. just holding this camera, holding this camera, it feels like it's an entirely different experience. I don't get to see the results no matter how hard I try. And it's not like I'm getting a, a digital camera, like a, a Leica that doesn't have a screen on it or anything like that. That's cheating. Um, but, you know, if, if I could have this to be digital, uh, like if, uh, if on the back here, because this is medium format six by six, if I could somehow get that to be a, um, uh, a like a sensor. If I could get a sensor there, oh, I would pay to have a sensor there, um, but I can't. And so sometimes if you wanna get that super tactile experience, 
Um, and especially with medium format, you're not compromising a lot in terms of image quality. You're still going to get an exceptionally high quality image at the end of the day. Um, it is worth it for some people to go through the extra effort. And I just picked up a couple of black and white rolls, a couple of color rolls of medium format film here uh, in Bulgaria, and uh, I'll shoot them. The, the black and white stuff, I might even develop myself if I can find the proper chemicals. Um, and, and will it be a different process? Totally. I can't do what I do on, on the digital camera on, on film. And maybe that's the point, is that it's a different process. If you're so tired with the, the way that you're currently shooting, if you're not feeling inspired and you need to change some variables around, well, that's one very big variable to change your entire process. And if the process is the problem, then that's your solution. So yeah. push yourself a little bit and try something different. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love this, the, like the, the, these old cameras. I mean, I hate the fact that it's like, uh like real i think it's like kangaroo leather or something poor kangaroo um <laughs> but hey it was made in 1926 women didn't even have the right to vote in most countries in 1926 so i mean this is uh, uh not, not a lot of uh i mean b between the world wars something made in germany uh you know it, it it's an antique it's a relic but it was modified by somebody at one point there is a pc sink port on the side of it which was not 1920s technology. Uh, somebody added that after the fact, so I could fire a flash with this thing. And that opens up so many more creative possibilities uh, for me. And, uh, and so I, I'll explore it. And you know what? If only a small fraction of the world has those red, blue anaglyph glasses like you do, Brian, and you can see an image that I might post as an anaglyph and say, aha, run over to Don's book, grab those glasses, look at it. And that's an entirely different experience that only a small group of people will, will see properly. But those that do will say, wow, that's so cool. Then I'm happy about that. This guy said that. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It is, uh, it is interesting, though, uh, talking about modifying the, the gear, and you were saying if you could get a sensor in the back of that camera. Uh, I saw a little while ago, and I can't remember who it was that was doing it, but they were modifying vintage cameras and putting digital backs on them. Um, and the first Nikon was that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Actually, we did the Nikon brown box challenge for the Day Tripper channel, and Nikon gave us the first digital SLR camera that they produced, and it was literally a Nikon F. F2, I believe it was. Okay. And I think I have one of those in the case. You open up the film back, and they literally hot glued a digital sensor to the back of that so that when it realigned with the film, it was the digital sensor being hit, not the film. And then they had a long cord that went to a, an actual computer, which you, you know, sling over your shoulder. And it was like a whole processor recorded to a three and a half inch floppy disk. Um, yeah. And that was the first Nikon. I don't know if it was the production digital camera or their first digital. That they tried yeah, they to partnered with Kodak uh, to do those. And I think Canon did uh, early on as well, a few years after Nikon had their first prototypes. I think a lot of those were sold to, uh, to you know, for military purposes more than anything else. Um, Just to see so, that they can do it, you know? Yeah. Kind I of, yeah. For, I, I, like, assisted for a professional photographer. Uh, he's He does, uh, like, the photos for the Canadian Opera Company, and one of his favorite cameras is a medium format change to a digital phase-back camera. 
Um, yeah, well, that, that yeah. was one format that was actually really easy to adapt is the medium yeah. format because the camera body was obviously separate from the lens, but the back was separate from the body. And so you could put a digital back on, on like a Hasselblad or um, uh, a Mamiya or, you know, Pentax had their 645 cameras, which I mean, they still make digital equivalents of, but, um, you know, that, that was a really cool thing. And uh, I think phase one still makes, you know, uh, 200 megapixel backs um, for those camera systems. And I, I think that's really freeing as well. I mean, you can kind of uh, choose. I, at first, I thought, you know, a tripod's a tripod. Oh, but no, no, you can change out the head on a tripod. Heck, you could even change out the feet on a tripod. And when it comes to ball heads, oh, you can even swap the mounting quick plate release system on that too. And everything in photography, at least in that area, can be modular. I almost wish that we had more modularity in, in our modern cameras. But alas, ah, yes, there you go. I, I found the video here. I was just going to, this is how they did it here. So it's literally an F3 Nikon camera with the sensor glued onto the back like that. That's cool. If somebody could like take a modern camera sensor, uh, wrap it into like a Raspberry Pi that's going to fit in the back of that thing uh, and, and control it, I, I would buy it. <laughs> so yeah, cool. why not, right? Just to have it and play with it and... Well, yeah, well I, I think one of the inconveniences about, about film uh, is, is that it does take time and it takes yeah. processing and it takes money and you don't get the instant gratification results. And if I could have the uh, weird eccentric film cameras that, uh, that I love to, to hold and, and to shoot with uh, while simultaneously getting that instant gratification back, I'd take it. Yeah. I thought I was getting that. I bought that Hipstamatic app for my phone. No, it just took a lot of money and it sucked. Anyway, um, <laughs> talking about cool gear, uh, at the end of our shows, we usually ask three questions to our guests. One would be, I don't know if you got my email with the yep. notes. Um, I don't I know if it. you were able to think of a challenge maybe for our listeners or our viewers that you'd like to issue. I got uh, one. Go for it. Let's let's see what your challenge so, is. So, you know, a, a lot of what I do is exploring the everyday in different ways. And so my challenge is to think about something in your everyday life that is completely inconsequential to your thought processes for the day. It could be the ordinary cup that you drink your coffee out of. You know, it could be, uh, you know, the, the, the oil stain on your driveway that's a reminder that, yeah, you should probably get that checked. Um, you know, it, it just something in your day that is completely boring that you would not think is photo worthy at all. Um, and make make an image with that. Take that take that as a as a challenge to have the most boring thing that you would never consider taking a picture of, and trying to tell either its story or make it into something that becomes, a, yeah, a stretch to call it a masterpiece, but something that is worthy of a photograph. And and simply the act of doing that will make you think differently about all of your surroundings. If you're intentionally trying to focus on the most boring, mundane, uh, forgettable stuff. Very cool. I'm just thinking of what's boring around here. Uh, <laughs> me. I don't know. The, yeah, I was going to say the, me. The hard <laughs> water lime buildup on your kitchen sink faucet. Who knows? Ooh. That could be an interesting macro image. Yeah. All right. I see where you're going. All right. Cool. Yeah. Any, anything. Yeah. Uh, a, a plug, the inside of a, an HDMI cable uh, pen. 
Well, I remember when I did the naked photography challenge, I did it in the bathroom, which sounds very yeah, weird I, on both points. I misunderstood uh, that challenge. I'm <laughs> sorry for the picture you got, Brian. I really <laughs> but I was taking pictures of like a toothbrush and even just the, the pattern of the toothbrush, the way it would go up and down was interesting at certain angles, right? Like it's, that's absolutely true. When you start looking at things that you don't normally think of in a different way, it does open your mind to everything around you. So that's a great challenge. Um, okay, so the other two questions, unless you've watched our show fully through, you don't know the questions yet. Uh, the first question is, what's your jam? My jam. That song um, that just, you cannot fast forward past, you have to listen to it every time, get you going in the morning if that's what it takes, whatever that is. It, 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 it's, a, it's a really tough one, and I spent some time thinking about it, and then I got lost in, in the thought process, and I ne never really figured it out. Um, <laughs> so uh, it was fun to think about, but uh, I, I feel uh, it's almost inspired by the radio here, because there's a lot of songs that they play in rotation here that haven't been played in a very long time. Uh, in North America. I mean, uh, you'll have like some classic uh, early Ozzy Osbourne played next to Savage Garden. It's like <laughs> very, very strange. And then a lot of foreign language stuff thrown into the mix. Uh, and so there was a couple of um, uh, of classics that I you know didn't expect and remembered and it was kind of fun. But if I had to go back to one that I'll always just kind of uh, turn up a little bit louder, uh, Freebird. It'd be Freebird. Great choice. Yeah. Good tune. That's a great choice. Awesome. All right. So the second, or sorry, the third question, the, the final question we have for you before we let you go is, well, again, maybe not the last question, because I'm going to ask Mark and Aurora if they have anything after. Um, but the third question we have for you is, what is your tool of the trade? What is that one thing that you rely on every time you're trying to be creative, every time you're trying to do something? that just helps you do what you do? Um, my phone. Um, now, I'm not talking about using it to like to be the main camera, um, but it is an immediate resource in so many different ways. But one of the ones that I wanna talk about right here, and this is a really important thing for people to remember, um, take a photo of your setup, where you were when you were taking a picture. Maybe even do a selfie with your camera or just the camera and its settings. In like when I'm doing macro setups, there's a tabletop contraption of things around me. And I take photographs of exactly how that was set up, partly for my own reference, but also as a valuable teaching tool. And if you're just learning something new and you're not sure exactly uh, you know, how you did something and why it's a, being a great success and you run home and you're super giddy and excited about it and then you can't remember exactly how you did it. So effectively, I'm saying a backup camera. My phone is a backup camera uh, and I'm using it for all of that behind the scenes type footage. And I don't think enough photographers do that. Um, yeah. and, and I, I have to remind myself all the time that I need to take that out and make sure that that is a part of the process. Um, and if you've seen my books, you'll see a lot of behind the scenes images, uh, that result from that. And it's a great learning tool, um, for you and for others. And it can also in some ways legitimize your work. If you do something that other people don't believe could be actually done in camera, yet have proof. So there you go. Awesome. Good that's point. a, that's a great tool. Um, I, I think there's a lot of uh, creatives that can benefit from that, especially if it's uh, even if it's music. Um, I did one where I'd, I made up a rhythm on guitar and for the life of me later on, I couldn't remember it. 
I'm like, well, how did it go? How did it go? And I, I just so scatterbrained, I couldn't remember it. So the next time when I finally did figure it out again, I recorded it with my phone so that I so that I had it. And uh, now Perfect. I've got it immortalized in how terrible I really sound on guitar. <laughs> another thing. Awesome. All right. Well, that was really great stuff. <clears throat> Thank you so much, yeah. Don, for spending time with us. Before we say goodbye, Mark, Aurora, would you like to uh, ask Don anything? Um, I think I'm good. I, I think we've uh, we've had a great conversation. I just want to thank you, Don, for for coming on the show. I know we're late for you, early for us, but uh, really, really appreciate your time today. This has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, my, my pleasure. Anytime. Uh, best of luck with uh, the rest of season two of the podcast. And uh, I hope we'll uh, talk to you guys again at some point. I mean, yes, I am on a different continent now, so it's harder to get together in person. But we're, we're just, uh, you know, a, a Zoom call or whatever this platform is just away. A just a click. You know, the world yeah. is I, I'm literally in a village of like 130 something people. Uh, and uh, this is coming to you from a 4G internet connection in a rural village uh, in Bulgaria. And uh, if, if that can be true, then I could be anywhere on the planet, and so can you, and all of these wonderful conversations keep happening, and I'm, so cool. I'm all the happier for it. <clears throat> Perfect. I have a question. Um, just because uh, you definitely seem to have taken like a very unique and different approach to your photography um, and videography, I guess, as well. Um, mm -hmm. My question to you is, what is something that you've done photographically wise or video wise that took you completely out of your comfort zone? Ooh, good question. Um, so I, th there's a couple of things that I um, uh, you, you might think is in my comfort zone, but uh, working on like a, um, a a film crew is difficult. Like when you're surrounded by other people and you're uh, you're a cog in a machine. But uh, one example was I, I had to go down to a um, uh, it was a, a cold science laboratory in Montana at the University of Montana. And they had these like super frigid cold rooms uh, for growing different types of crystals to study, uh, you know, uh, avalanches and, and things like that. And so I was, uh, you might think, oh, uh, it's, uh, that's right up Don's alley, you know, photographing frozen crystals in a cold place. Um, but doing it on video with a director and another photographer and other helpers and everything else all around um, really takes me out of that sort of creative vibe. Uh, and so I, I mean, I, I got what they wanted, but there are other times when I'm working on documentaries where I'll present them something that they had no idea that they wanted because my mind was able to, to wander and create something interesting and, and just kind of explore some what if moments. And I showed it to the director and it stops them in their tracks. Um, usually that's when I'm working remotely working from home on these different projects where I can kind of sit and ponder, uh, off in my own little world and come up with something. Case in point, uh, the Discovery uh, documentary Mosquito uh, I worked on, and they had hired me to do um, uh, different uh, mosquito species on pins uh, from a laboratory at Brock University, uh, rotating around that pin. Uh, and, and I could do that. I've got the technology in order to do that, and that was fine. We were gearing up for the shoot. But just a few days prior, I had photographed um, uh, a cicada, and cicadas uh, have normally clear wings, but they fluoresce vibrantly blue under ultraviolet light, something I didn't expect. And so I found a dead mosquito from my sunroom. 
and uh, put it under the ultraviolet light and uh, you know created a nice focus stacked image and I showed it to them. And long story short, their budget for me got bigger and uh, they used footage that I shot uh, using that technique at Brock University. So working in groups, I don't like. Um, it, and it really makes, it, it fries the, the, the creativity right out of me. And then you're just left with this, you know, uh, over or undercooked meal. Uh, it just doesn't feel like you were able to, you know, be the chef in the kitchen as you really wanted to be. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, my brain, <clears throat> I'm kind of reading that as my whole I shoot for me thing. Yeah. You know, like when you have other people yeah. dictating your results and other people, you know, micromanaging how you work, it's a little less freeing and it definitely stifles it's one of the reasons why i don't shoot weddings i think that <laughs> I, I think that's really cool because uh you not only gave the answer of what's like completely out of your comfort zone that you've done before but you also kind of uh, explained how you were able to kind of come out of that and you know like working separately on your own to find that creative angle and then bring it to them after to kind of like really wow them and press them. And I think that's uh, a great piece of advice for a lot of people in any sort of creative field. You know? And just if I were to extend that advice to one further comment, um, it's that uh, don't don't under promise. I mean, promise whatever you're going to give people, but um, give them more uh, as, as an option. Uh, and I do this with documentary film work all the time. I shoot exactly what's on their shot list, but I'll come up with other creative ideas along the way. And I put that in a separate pile. And I said, okay, guys, here's all the stuff you asked for, uh, agreed upon contract, there you go. But while I was at it, I got these other crazy ideas. I put them in this pile. If you want them for X amount of dollars, they are all yours. You can lay claim to them. It's an all or nothing deal. Uh, and I've never once had that offer rejected. Nice. <laughs> Nice. That's awesome. All right. Anything else, guys, before we say goodbye? No, oh, I think we're good. Don, Thank you're the man. Appreciate you so much. Uh, your talent is overwhelming. Your attention to detail is Kamarechka level. And, uh, <laughs> we, we, you know, it's just, I'm really happy that you came on our show. So thank you so much. Enjoy your time in Bulgaria. Uh, I really hope that uh, <clears throat> everything goes well for you there. How long have you been there now? Uh, we've been here uh, about a month and a half. A month and I already half, have really. permanent resident status and working on getting other paperwork. I think on the 20th, we're meeting to set up a corporation over here to carry all of my business assets over. And there's a lot of logistics stuff to happen in the next uh, you know month or two. Uh, but this is home now. And we're very happy that it is. And in fact, it's going to let me explore some of those passion projects, that, that shooting for me idea, um, even more strongly than ever before. And I'm just so curious as to what is going to evolve out of that. Because if I am just left to my own devices, um, it usually ends up with me discovering ultraviolet fluorescence as a photographic subject, which has become a big part of my career. And I, I fully expect that there will be other such discoveries. And we'll be in touch when that happens. Awesome. Perfect. Sounds great. All right. Excellent. Thank you again, Mark, Aurora. Thank you both again. And we will see you all next week. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Take care.